Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Berge Brenda is the president of World Economic Forum, an independent organization committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic and other leaders of society to shape global agendas. In this episode, we discuss Berge's upbringing and his early passion for understanding and having an impact in the world. His diverse experience from business, politics and humanitarianism. And lastly, why the world needs bright and adaptable leaders to shape and secure the future of our economy and environment. Let's start the episode. All opinions expressed by Christopher Wonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Wonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back, everyone. Super excited to be joined by Börge Brenda. And Börge, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. I, I want us to go back to, to your upbringing because I knew you had a family business that mentioned that you're pretty early on got used to being involved in business. Can you talk a bit about the family business and how it affected you growing up? So uh, it was a construction company that my grandfather started and uh, my father was also an engineer. So he uh, was uh, also working in the company and he took over as um, uh, running it after my uh, grandfather. So um, of course it impacted uh, the whole family. The company was next door with all the equipment, the office, and all this. And after 4 o'clock, they switched all the phone calls over to our, at our home. So I was an expert in taking notes when people wanted, um, you know, uh, some problems with their pipes or they wanted uh, some construction people over and this. So I, I felt that I was part of the company uh, since uh, I was able, um, you know, able to start writing. And so you basically, you did many different tasks at the company, but in the end, did you end up running the, the economy for some years as the business administration or how did that end up? So when I came back to Trondheim in uh, 1990, I think it was, then I became the CFO of the company. So I was the CFO of the company uh, for two years, one and a half years. But then um, our mayor back then, Marvin Wisset, that was, uh, and he's my um, very good friend, he persuaded me to run on uh, the list for um, the city elections in Trondheim. And he said, yeah, just be on the list. And I was on the list and suddenly uh, I became then um, one of the Kommunalrådet, a kind of a deputy mayor uh, function. So I, my career in the construction company, I think, lasted for one and a half year because I was, then I was like back in politics again. How was that conversation? Was it, it's okay? Or was it a bit tough since it's a family business? Was it sort of expected for you to run it in the end? Or, or was it a conversation that was totally fine to have because you were always, always interested in politics? I think it was not really expected that I was going to run the company uh, until I then uh, decided 
uh, moving back to Trondheim that uh, I was going to be the CFO of the company. Then I think the family had hoped and maybe wanted me uh, to run the company, but uh, you know, but I couldn't turn down uh, this offer uh, to be a kind of a deputy uh, mayor uh, uh in the municipality. And after that, I I, I was sold for politics. I, I wanted to uh, get into the parliament. I wanted to have uh, a role to be able to shape uh, Norwegian uh, society through politics. And I think the family just gave up on me then. They probably thought that, no, no this guy is not going to uh, be in the construction business. I want to talk a bit about your reading habits because it's quoted in, in newspapers and magazines that you, you sort of demanded from a pretty early age to have all the newspapers ready for you each Saturday to go through and read them. Can you tell us about that story that you pretty young decided that you were going to, to read a lot and, and study everything basically you could get your hands on? Yeah, I, I, um, uh, to clarify, I, I didn't uh, demand to have them ready for me, though, because <laughs> that wasn't the way it was. Uh, so I, I, I had a fight with my parents because I remember we had we subscribed to one newspaper, and that was Adressavisen. And I said to my parents, but on Saturdays, I, I really, really would like to uh, read uh, the Oslo papers, like Aftenposten and uh, Dagblad. And uh, I remember uh, my father said to me, no, Aftenposten is just a local paper for Oslo. So that we can't use money on. Uh, okay. Uh, and I remember I was not uh, too happy with it. But uh, I was able then to mobilize my kind of own uh, earnings. So I, I did end up uh, buying them. I also bought Mornbrother. That was still uh, a paper. Uh, no, it's back again, though. But uh, it, it was quite a... Uh, yeah, not also paper back then. So that uh, I think I I, um, I, I felt that uh, this opened a new horizon uh, to read also uh, other kind of uh, news. But then I re- later on found out though uh, that in the library in Trondheim Centrum uh, at Folkebiblioteket, there they had all the newspapers every day. So uh, it was possible to just uh, bike down there and read them there for free. It's, it's very interesting to, to see that so many successful people are avid readers. And it's just interesting to hear uh, how has those reading habits evolved today? So are you still very keen on reading a lot? And how does sort of your content diet look like? Do you prefer newspapers or do you like to dive into books or go topic by topic? And, and how do you structure those those reading habits today. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, you know, uh, later on when I um, became a teenager and in uh, in high school, I started to read uh, The Economist. I got it recommended uh, by uh, some friends. And since I was like 14, 15 years, I've read The Economist every week, and that I do continue with. I I, I find it still as uh, if you're going to read one thing. Uh, during a week, uh, I still would do uh, The Economist because it's so comprehensive. It uh, also uh, summing up the week, but it also has, uh, of course, um, uh, really a good coverage of international uh, current affairs. I still really, really like uh, to spend too much time on reading newspapers. Uh, I have to say uh, I do read uh, Financial Times, 
uh, no every evening uh, because that's uh, the way it is. I also uh, do read um, some of the US ones. I, I do read New York Times, Washington Post, and I also skim through Wall Street Journal. These are the like international papers I, I, I look at. And then, of course, I'm not able to get rid of my old habits with the Norwegian papers though. So I do read a couple of them also in the evening before going to bed. Got it. So looking back, how influential will you say that the the part where you decided to go to US at a pretty young age? And I think you also said that it was sort of a completely independent decision. You wasn't forced by the parents. You actually filled out the forms by yourself. And I mean, at 15 years old, at least at that time, it, it, it sort of... It reflects on a very independent and much mature guy that wants to go out and explore the world. So do you think that was like a pivotal moment in, in your life, starting so young to explore the world and, and go to US? Yes, I, I, I think so. And, and you're so well informed. I don't know where you got all this information uh, from. Uh, so it is true. This was like the last year um, in high school. I was uh, in Norway, though. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a different system. But uh, so I was like um, 14, 15 at the time. I, I looked uh, in school. They had like this um, information for AFS and uh, exchange students. And I looked at it. Wow. I thought, no, next year I would like to go to the US for this exchange thing. I, I brought the brochure with me. I filled it out and then I just applied. And then I got uh, interviewed and I told my parents uh, only first when I was called in for the interview because I didn't want to tell anyone uh, if they didn't, you know, ask me to come to be interviewed. That was too embarrassing. And then I got interviewed, I got offered this thing and um, I, I, I really never asked my parents. I took it like a bit of a priori uh, given that um, this was up to myself uh, to decide and I have never regretted it you know uh, coming uh, from Norway back uh, this was in 1981 I was 15 years when I left I turned 16 later um, in the fall and for me you know I, I there were so many new things for me in the US that was just totally unbelievable for a 15 uh, years old and um, since then I also grew uh, very much a fond of the US. Of course, US uh, is uh, uh, a lot of positive stuff, but of course, they also have their challenges. But if you go somewhere when you're 15, it will also shape um, um, your life and also reading habits. Uh, that was like really when I also got into more uh, English literature, American literature. I had like a course of uh, of literature and uh, I, I used it was a, a tremendous uh, year uh, for me that was also uh, life-changing in many ways because I I, for the, I really felt a lot of freedom uh, when I came there uh, I did got you so going a bit forward I mean you've done some you have done jobs in politics the Red Cross and now in World Economic Forum to have that sort of that broad interest and and also being able to to do those jobs, what qualities do you think are necessary to be able to to do a great job in all those different fields and disciplines? Because I don't think there are that many that can actually have an influence in in such broad fields. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I'm not 
a lot of it is also, uh, you know, being there at the right moment is also, I think it's about hard work. Um, so um, when I came back from the US, I, I started in youth politics. Uh, and uh, I think it was like just for me, uh, uh, a great arena uh, to discuss, also to learn more. And then uh, I never really applied for a job in my, my entire life. Uh, there has come these offerings. So I've mainly been focusing on doing a, a good job where I am. Uh, and then uh, things ha have a tendency to solve themselves. I did once though, apply when I moved from Trondheim to Oslo. I did apply for this summer job uh, in Aftenposten. Uh, this newspaper I wanted to buy, remember, uh, on Saturdays. I did apply for a summer job there and I got it uh, as uh, a reporter. And that was for me uh, just a very good start of moving to the capital uh, to also then work uh, in the leading newspaper in Norway back then. And also I financed my studies by working there because I worked uh, two evenings every um, week uh, from six to two o'clock and after nine o'clock or something in the evening, they paid you really, really well. So I was like uh, very happy with that. And at that age, I didn't look at it as work at all. I looked at this as a great pleasure. You know, people said, oh, aren't you tired coming back to, to the university the day after? I said, no, 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 this is like uh, my hobby and I get paid for it. That's awesome. But so, so, okay, so you haven't really, you haven't planned your career, it seems. It's sort of, you, you, you've been, you've done a good job and then opportunities arise. Then the question becomes, how do you evaluate those opportunities? Because making such big moves, I mean, being a minister and then decided that I want to move to Geneva or going to the Red Cross, have you sort of used a framework to anal analysis those opportunities? Or is it just primarily a gut feeling, family decisions, and then go from there? I think it's gut feeling. So uh, I, of course, ha has also been um, quite lucky. You know, I, I became uh, chair of the Young Conservatives uh, very young. Uh, I think 22 uh, years old. Uh, and then uh, I uh, also came into uh, regional uh, local politics in, in Trondheim got elected to the parliament and in 2001 when when my party uh, was in government again I was uh, the only kind of younger generation of the men that got, uh, got this opportunity to to join the cabinet and uh, for me to then deal with environment and climate was like just an amazing opportunity because I've always been interested uh, in that field was a great opportunity to pursue some of the things I, I thought was going should happen uh, in the environmental field. We double, for example, the amount of national park areas in Norway in just three years. And no, people are saying, oh, it's also about nature. Back then people said, yeah, national parks. Yeah, it's protecting the wilderness, but it's also we know if animals and the nature comes uh, too close uh, on people, uh, or things can happen that we really uh, don't want uh, to happen. And based on that, being the minister, uh, the youngest minister in the cabinet and being uh, on environment, I also got this opportunity through the UN where I was nominated as the chair of the UN Commission for Sustainable Development. And that gave, gave me like, like a huge opportunity to build an international um, network. I think that was probably 
a breakthrough, breakthrough in that uh, respect. And then uh, I got uh, also as trade and industry minister, I got really uh, interested in the global politics and uh, uh, geopolitical uh, affairs. And that's why I think also I accepted to, to go to to uh, Geneva and uh, to become a managing director here at the World Economic Forum. Let's talk a bit about your job now at World Economic Forum. And there are some topics I want to discuss, but can you just, from from your perspective, what are some of the, the hardest sort of dilemmas you're seeing right now? I mean, I mean, I mean, the usual narrative has, of course, been, you know, the, the climate versus the growth, because you, you can easily see that the countries with the biggest growth usually also has burned the most fossil fuels. But in your mind, what, what are some of the biggest dilemmas you are seeing in growing the economies in a sustainable way? I, I think this decoupling issue is uh, the core one related to climate change, because there is a fa- it's a fact that 1.4 billion people don't have access to basic electricity. And if you don't have access to electricity, no development. But you cannot uh, continue a development where we see uh, an increase in CO2 emissions. So we have to decouple this. And we have seen massive breakthroughs just uh, during the last decade. For example, the price of solar has fallen to one-tenth of what it was 10 years ago. Uh, also, the price for other uh, new renewables have fallen dramatically. But the amount of energy that we will need in the years to come uh, is also uh, enormous. So we, we have to use all the new technologies related to the fourth industrial revolution uh, to make sure that we decouple and that we maybe for some time also can uh, store uh, carbon, uh, extract carbon. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if we set a price on carbon and it's not free to emit, uh, I think the technologies will also then um, be uh, developed that we have uh, also uh, seen before. The challenge, though, is that we know that if we continue on an uh, on an unsustainable path as today, the cost of inaction far exceeds the cost of action in climate change. But that is kind of common sense, but it's not so common. I, I, we, we are all talking about it, but every week there is built a three new uh, coal-fired power plants, and then we will never uh, reach uh, the 1.5 or 2.5 degrees um, uh, goal. Can you be? Can you give it a bit an insight into how your role is? Because obviously you you have you gather a lot of smart people, the base organizations and the politicians. But I also understand that you you run sort of this research lab in San Francisco. So, are you also going to do some research yourself more and more, or is it more about bringing people together and helping creating those solutions and communities? So uh, the World Economic Forum is an international organization, not for profit. We are the international organization for enhancing public-private cooperation, to bring business together with government, civil society, and see what we can achieve when we get together. For example, on climate change, when it comes to also setting higher standards, fighting corruption, when it comes to sustainability goals in general, how to make sure that we have a more inclusive economy a more sustainable economy, a more job-creating economy, but without uh, losing uh, the momentum of the growth. Because without growth, 
um, we will not be able uh, to eradicate uh, the poverty that is uh, around. So the role of the forum is like bringing these uh, different players together and then agree on action. That's why we, for example, have uh, 70 of the leading CEOs of the largest companies in the world. They have this uh, climate action group and uh, mission possible. We have uh, the same on nature, how to uh, save uh, biodiversity. We had no uh, almost 100 companies coming together and agreeing on ESGs, environmental and uh, also social um, and governance standards, where companies then say, these are the standards we will comply with, even if they go much further uh, than the national uh, legislation. So these are examples of things that the World Economic Forum uh, is engaged in. And as our members and partners, we have the thousand uh, leading companies of, uh, of the world as, as, as part of our organization. Got you. Uh, another topic I really wanted to, to get to discuss a bit is your relationship with the founder, Klaus Schwab, because, I mean, you're the president now, but, I mean, the founder is also very active. Can you, can you maybe introduce him as well? Because many, many people listening may not know his name. So And also how you have found that relationship to be working. Yeah, so uh, Professor Klaus Schwab, he uh, started uh, the World Economic Forum back in 1971. So he has really, really been doing this now for more than 50 years. So he's the executive chairman and he is the chairman of the board, the non-executive board. And as a president, I'm sharing the managing board and like the daily operations. So we meet every morning at nine o'clock uh, if both of us uh, happen to be in Geneva. And these days it, it does happen more frequently uh, than uh, before the pandemic. And we then have an agenda where we discuss uh, some running issues, but also more uh, strategic issues. So um, I find this relationship and the partnership uh, extremely uh, well-functioning, and I think there is a trust there that is uh, unique. And I'm also uh, learning uh, a lot because you know when you've been running something like this for 50 years, you have experienced a lot. And hopefully, I can also contribute with something though, with, based on my experience. Do you have any topics where, where you challenge each other, or are you on the same page a lot, or, or do you also disagree on, on some issues or topics, or where you want to move the forum ahead, or is it on the same page often? I think on the big issues like where we want to move the forum ahead, I, I think we're pretty much aligned. But uh, in the daily meetings, of course, we have discussions and pros and cons discussions. I'm always been in favor of. Uh, um, this uh, thing that uh, the approach uh, that they have in the synagogues, you know, uh, if all the rabbis agree on a Friday on topics, they say, okay, we'll wait with that decision to the next Friday where someone starts to disagree. So I'm trying always to look at it uh, from different angles. But of course, if we first make a decision, then it's about implementation. Is it possible for you to, to share some, some milestones ahead in, in terms of what you want to achieve at the forum? Because, uh, I mean, uh, the relevance seemed to be to be getting stronger and stronger and, and sort of the need to connect. We have China rising to become a new superpower. So it seems that we need some forums that can sort of get people together and, and figure out the puzzles in order to make uh, sustainable growth going. So is it possible for you to forecast some years ahead and what we can see coming from the forum? 
No, with, with pleasure. Uh, just uh, putting it a little bit into context then. So um, we're in the middle of uh, the worst pandemic in 100 years. We are seeing some light in the end of the tunnel um, because of the vaccination. And uh, if you a year ago had said that, oh, we're going to develop vaccines that are effective against uh, COVID-19 uh, in a year, people would say not so likely because usually it takes a decade. Uh, but the pharmaceuticals that many have questioned have really done this. So the private sector has brought the vaccines uh, on the table and a lot of people are, uh, and especially vulnerable people, are now getting uh, a jab um, all over uh, the world. Uh, but not as uh, much in the developing world as we would have liked. This pandemic also has led to a massive contraction in the global economy. So we have seen now... Um, uh, stimulus that we've never seen uh, since the Second World War, 12 trillion US dollars. And many governments are now indebted or they don't have a fiscal muscle that is so strong in the years to come. So if we are going to achieve um, progress on important areas being climate change, being uh, nature and biodiversity, if we're going to create all the skills and the digital transformation that is necessary, 3.6 billion people on our planet don't have access to the internet. How can they be part of leapfrogging and a digital transformation if they don't even have um, a digital uh, connection? All these areas, we also have to work strongly with the private sector. So what has the forum done and what will we work on in the years to come? We just launched um, Edison Alliance. It's an alliance of um, businesses, uh, companies, and governments saying, uh, first priority now, we'll need to make sure that the whole world is digitally connected. Then uh, we also launched uh, during uh, Davos uh, this initiative of 1 billion people upskilled or reskilled. It is all about skills now. Uh, the unemployment that we're seeing can only be solved uh, if we also uh, get people um, with uh, the right skills. Then, uh, as I already mentioned, uh, we have this mission possible with uh, business people coming out and saying, oh, we'll go climate neutral in 2030. We'll go climate neutral in 2035. We'll take these and these steps. If we mobilize the private sector that is also then responsible for most of the emissions uh, in the world, uh, half of the job is done. And we have to have the private sector. My goal is to have the private sector really, really pushing, uh, nudging uh, the garments. Uh, and I think we're seeing this now with some companies that are really, really proactive. I mean, just the last point to, to emphasize what you're saying, Berge, it's a thought I had because you, you also, uh, I've heard you before talking about your concern for the youth, that we need to bring them along. They need to see that they have an exciting future ahead. And, and the point you're mentioning about reskilling and upskilling, it, it's so important because what we see with the recovery is that it was shaped like a K, which meant that the digital companies recovered super fast. And then, of course, the question is, how can we reskill more people at a faster pace? And do you think that, you know, looking at your career, you've been super adaptable all the time, that this is sort of like we need maybe this like mindset or shift in mentality to be more flexible, more adaptable, maybe to change companies off more often or start a new company because the dynamics and the, it's going so fast in this world that we also need this like change in mindset into, to be able to have this growth going forward. I think you're right that uh, young people today um, will have to be more agile 
and they will need to also uh, reskill themselves uh, um, much uh, faster. I think we also, uh, young people, maybe are willing also to get more out of their comfort zone. And to get out of your comfort zone is not that uh, always that pleasant, but it also, uh, you, you get more skills uh, by that. I, I remember when I, I joined uh, the Red Cross as Secretary General after having been at the World Economic Forum, the first weeks I was asking myself, oh, why did I do this? And then uh, I really started to enjoy it and I learned a lot. I, I, wouldn't, I, I would not have missed any of the insight I got uh, related to humanitarian principles, but also running, for example, humanitarian operations uh, in uh, uh, areas that are uh, hit by uh, natural disasters or of uh, war and conflict. It's, it's very um, fulfilling. So overall, I think uh, we, we will have to, to um, put more emphasis uh, on upskilling uh, in the years to come. Perfect ending. Börge, thank you so much for joining. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was uh, great to be, uh, be invited. Hi everyone, Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care. <laughs>